The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer, give you an opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship and ready to focus on the word and then we'll then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and to study your word this evening, to be refreshed by the things that we study, to be challenged by them, to take time to do some spiritual inventory recognize that the Christian life is always a life of change, a life where your word challenges us with the errors of our own comfort zones and personal agendas, and that it is your word, though, that is always powerful and that we must always obey. Father, we pray that we would be responsive to what we learned this evening. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This week I've gotten some interesting questions. One question that came in uh, through email was somebody said, seems like you always recite these different verses before class. Why do you do that? And some people don't know the answer to that. And the reason I do that is because Bible memory is very important. And I know that uh, a lot of you are very busy and you haven't quite figured out how to make that a priority in your life. And a lot of people don't do that. So I'm hoping that by always repeating these sets of verses before class that you will listen to them and that uh, every now and then I see people sort of lip syncing along with me while I'm saying them, which is good review for you, hoping that through all the repetition you don't just sort of put your brain in neutral and say, oh, well, that's what we go through when you start class, but that you will think through those verses. Uh, I've chosen them for a number of reasons and I put them together the way I do for a number of reasons. And hopefully that will help you remember them. I got started doing that a number of years ago when uh, I was sitting around at lunch up in uh, Connecticut over at North Stonington Bible Church at a Labor Day conference. And Charlie Clough was speaking over there. And he and Jay Chapel and I were sitting around talking about uh, different things. And Charlie told the story about how back years ago when he was at Lubbock Bible Church, he had a guy in his congregation who was a, uh, a bomber, I guess a flying B-52s in, 
in um, in uh, the Vietnam War and what it was like the first time he went on a bombing raid over North uh, North Vietnam and over Hanoi. And according to the uh, accepted uh, tactic for bomb- bombers in flight, they stack them. You have th- two or three levels of bombers, and you have your wingmen, your bombers on each side, and over you and below you. And there is a reason for the way they fly in formation and how they fly in formation so that everybody can protect uh, everybody else around them. So as you go in, as he described it, as he was flying into North Vietnam and all the uh, and an aircraft fire started going off around them, you just get scared to death. You want to push the panic button, and you want to start grabbing the wheel of that uh, airplane and start diving and maneuvering and trying to dodge and get around everything. But there are set procedures for just precisely what you're supposed to do and stay in formation so that everybody can watch everybody else. And he just had this a panic coming over him and this fear, and all of a sudden in his head, he heard the voice of Pastor Theme reciting the verses that he used to recite before Bible class. Among them were Isaiah 40:31 and Philippians uh, 4, 5, and 6, and others, and it just stabilized his emotions and calmed him down. And I thought, you know, that is a fantastic principle, is reciting those verses in such a way like that before every class so that people will learn them and memorize them and maybe one day you'll be in a position and you'll hear my voice in your head. But you will hear the Word of God and not just um, teaching. So that's very important. That's one reason I do do that. Now, last time, last couple of weeks, we've been in this paragraph in Hebrews 6, 9 through 12, which comes to a positive encouragement after a section where the writer has just blasted these Hebrew believers for their spiritual lethargy. They are just become lazy spiritually. They are yielding to the pressures of the moment, the opposition from Jewish believers, the antagonism from other Jews who are the opposition from the Jewish Hierarchy from the Pharisees and the Sadducees, antagonism from other Jewish unbelievers because they have chosen to follow Jesus Christ and to put their trust in Him. And as they're going through this, now they're beginning to second-guess their decision to trust in Christ and to follow Him. So he has blasted them back in verse 11. He said, uh, I have much to say about Melchizedek and the unique priesthood of the church age is the thrust of his argumentation. He says, but I have much to say about that, but I can't because you have become dull of hearing. And the word dull means lazy or slovenly. You just don't care, and it's affected your whole spiritual growth. And by now, I ought to be teaching you as adults, but I have to go back to basic doctrines, basic principles because you need milk and not solid food. And then he warns them about the real danger that a person can get in through spiritual lethargy of just uh, losing all forward momentum in the spiritual life and going into a reverse course where you back up. And it can get to a point just as a practical matter that you just won't recover. You reach a point of no return, not a not an absolute point of no return because he says all things are possible with God 
and we can recover if God permits. But practically speaking, and we've all seen this happen in people's lives, they just create this habit pattern and this negative momentum with regard to spiritual things. And as far as things go in life, there never really is any spiritual recovery. And that's what the warning is. And now he says, in contrast, but beloved, we're confident of better things concerning you. In other words, I don't expect you to stay in this condition where if you, if you respond to what I'm teaching you in this epistle, then you're not going to stay in this position of the spiritual doldrums where you're just stagnant and there's no growth or even reverse, uh, reverse growth where you're uh, backing up completely. So he says, We're confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation. So what he's confident of is those things that come with the package that God gives us at salvation that prepare us for that future salvation. Always remember that when you run across this noun salvation in Hebrews, it's not talking about justification. We just in, in English and in English speaking churches and among American evangelicals, our patois, our common koine verbiage is that if we want to know if somebody's going to go to heaven, we ask, Are you saved? And we use the word saved to be a blanket synonym for entering into eternal life, for being regenerated, for being justified. But the Bible uses the word in different senses. And in many cases, this noun soteria doesn't focus on the beginning of the process where we're regenerate, where we're justified, where we're reconciled, where our redemption is realized. But it focuses on the end product, what we call phase three, when we're absent from the body, face to face with the Lord and realize our blessings and rewards given at the judgment seat of Christ. And so what we see in 9 through 12 is this focus in almost every sentence on something future, something oriented to that future destiny and inheritance, which is where he ends in verse 12, that faith and patience, we need to follow those or imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Verse 10, he gives his reason why he's confident they're going to go forward. Same thing with us, no matter what happens in your life, the same principle is true. God is just, and God's going to work in your life, and God's not going to forget any forward advance, any spiritual advance, any divine good that's uh, been produced in your life through the Holy Spirit. God is going to remember your work, your labor of love, and the fact that you are ministering and have ministered, even though for them... They are in spiritual regression. There is still a measure of some spiritual momentum and interest because he uses a present tense participle there. He remembers their, he talks about God remembering their past work, the labor that came from their love for God. It's the love for God that motivates us and that you have present tense ministered, or excuse me, you have ministered to the saints, aorist tense, and you do minister present tense. So there's still practical application in terms of Christian service. And we studied the terminology there that that relates to the uh, word diakoneo, which is the act of Christian service. Verse 11 and 12 is where we are now. Verse 11 we, we read, And we desire, that's your main verb, we desire that. So what you have is a... 
is a clause, a purpose infinitive, infinitive of purpose in verse 11, that is your intermediate purpose with your ultimate purpose given in verse 12. So we desire that each one of you now in present time show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that is, until the end of your life. That, for the ultimate purpose, that you don't become sluggish, but it, I mean, the ultimate purpose, rather, in this life, is that you do not become sluggish, but you imitate those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. So, step one purpose is show diligence. Be diligent, uh, put forth effort in your sp- present spiritual growth. And step two is to not become sluggish, but positively imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now we'll look at that and break that apart uh, this evening. In terms of summarizing the points he's making here in the first verse, he says that we can have confidence that despite failure, God's grace always provides for recovery. And that is a tremendous principle to understand, that no matter what happens, no matter how much you failed, no matter how badly you sinned, God's grace is great enough for any sin. There is forgiveness and there is recovery. No sin is too great for the grace of God. The second thing that he emphasizes in verse 10 is that God's justice isn't going to forget that which has positively been produced in your life through God the Holy Spirit. So that he's does He's not going to forget, neglect, or overlook that which we have done in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now that brings us to our understanding of that rationale that he's using. It's the justice of God. And we need to do the same thing when we think about things. Think about the justice or the essence of God. And we see this as we looked at the essence of God. The focus was on his righteousness and justice. The righteousness is the absolute standard of his character. The justice is the application of that. So that whatever God does in his dealing with us, it's always going to be absolutely fair and right and just because he knows all the data. He's omniscient. There's no fact that he's unaware of. He knows all your motivations. He knows all your failings. He knows all your successes. He knows everything. And as Abraham stated back in Genesis won't the judge of all the earth do what is right? So we can rest and relax that God is going to do the right thing in his evaluation of us. So I've put together this little flow chart, and we'll look at it one more time just to try to get it into our heads. The Word is taught, and under the filling of the Holy Spirit, it comes into our soul as epinosis doctrine. It's not just academic knowledge, which is gnosis, It is usable knowledge. That's epinosis. It is spiritually usable knowledge. But it's potential. You don't just automatically apply it just because you're filled with the Spirit. Some people have gotten that idea. That comes from sort of a quasi-mystical view of the filling of the Holy Spirit, that if I'm just filled with the Spirit, He automatically applies it. Well, we all know that if you try to do that, this sort of let go, let God, it's very frustrating because... Uh, God doesn't, the Holy Spirit doesn't override your volition. And that's what's wrong with defining the word filling of the Spirit as control. Because control has that idea that your volition is controlled by the Spirit. And your volition's not. Your spiritual growth is being controlled by the Spirit, not your volition. 
So it's better to understand it as influence. God the Holy Spirit is influencing you with the Word of God so that you have that uh, uh, brought to your attention in your mind to apply. And in that process then, as you apply the Word, God the Holy Spirit produces growth. Now as we study the Word, we go through this process of divine viewpoint truth comes into our soul. It's garbage in, garbage out. Divine viewpoint truth comes in. And human viewpoint, cosmic truth gets flushed out, hopefully. Uh, actually, it doesn't leave. It's still there so that you have something to live on when, you, uh, when you're in carnality. And that's what produces sometimes at certain levels of Christian growth. You feel like you're just a, you're almost like you have multiple personalities. When you're in fellowship, walking with the Lord one day, you're one way. And the next day when you're carnal and out of sorts, you're angry or you're bitter or you're resentful, whatever it is, you feel like, what happened to me? I'm like a totally different person than I was yesterday. And we feel like there's this battle, and there is this battle going on in our soul, but sometimes you almost feel like you're two different people. And we all have days like that where we look in the mirror and we wonder, what happened? Who is that? But... When we're growing, we take in the word. Epinosis doctrine comes from the divine viewpoint truth that goes into our soul. And we exchange the human viewpoint garbage that we learned growing up for divine viewpoint truth. As we walk by the Spirit, stay in fellowship, apply doctrine, abide in Christ, the Holy Spirit produces spiritual growth that affects us in two ways. One way is through spiritual production of character. This is Galatians 5, uh, 21 and 22, the fruit of the Spirit. But then it also produces Christian service. That is the positive side, divine good, human works, Christian service as expressed through our priesthood, which is toward God, serving God. We have a verb we'll see tonight that's important. Let lutreo, or letreo, um, which is where we get our word liturgy, actually, uh, liter- excuse me, liturgos, um, which is where we get our word liturgy, and it is the idea of serving God. It's related to worship, and our life should be a, an act of worship toward God as we obey Him. The second aspect is ambassadorship, which is related to man. That is representing God, taking the gospel to a lost world. So Christian service flows out in a couple of different ways. This is what is covered in verse uh, 10 in terms of our our work, our labor of love, and Christian service. That's all summarized in verse 10. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 says that the purpose of the pastor teacher is to equip the saints, that's you. I'm the pastor, you're the saints. My job is to equip you to do work of the service. Now, how do you do that? You do that by teaching the whole counsel of God, teaching Old Testament, New Testament, teaching all the doctrines, teaching everything so that you become equipped mentally with what you need to live your spiritual life, to grow, and that will eventuate in service. So that's that word, the work of ministry in verse 12, is the word diakoneo, the same word we have, or diakonos, the same word we have in verse verse 10, which is the word for ministry. And that comes to, brings us to the third point in this paragraph, 
which is that the believer is expected to persevere in light of our future expectation, that future hope, that confident expectation we have, the idea that there is a future. There is a very real time of accountability before the Lord Jesus Christ when we will stand before Him at the Bema seat and we're going to be accountable for every word, thought, and deed, not in terms of sin and sinful punishment, but in terms of the fact that God has given you and me a package of assets, a package of abilities and the potential. We have God the Holy Spirit. We have the completed canon of Scripture. We have the 40 different things that God gives us at the instant of salvation. We have all these things that no other believer in human history has had, and we are expected to serve the Lord and to maximize on that potential and not just sit there and just kind of stick it away somewhere and say, well, I'm glad I'm going to go to heaven and that's about the end of it. So we are to, to persevere in Christian growth in light of that future expectation to continue in faith and patience in order to realize a full inheritance. Inheritance is always a code word talking about rewards and blessings in eternity. So we're living today in light of eternity And once we get to that stage in the spiritual life, it really begins to change our whole way of thinking and all of our priorities because all of a sudden we begin to realize that all that stuff, all that garbage that we put up with at work, all that garbage we put up with with family, all the uh, unpleasantries we put up dealing with with people, uh, opposition to the gospel, living in the devil's world, all this is meaningless. Paul said, I just count present suffering to be nothing when you compare it to the future glories that we're going to have, Romans chapter 8. So we have to live today in light of eternity. So let's look at these verses. We look at... I'm looking for something right now. I left something up here last week, and now it's not here. Somebody cleaned off up here and now it's gone okay won't use that then we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end and here the main verb of this sentence is we desire and it's the word for epithemeo which is a word that's sometimes translated lust in a negative sense but it indicates a strong controlling desire it emphasizes volition a strong desire to see something happen. And this is the desire of the pastor for his congregation that they get serious about the Word of God and that they press on. What I was going to, what I was looking for that I was going to read was a report I took off the internet last week on uh, the Barna report, which is a, uh, George Barna is a, um, evangelical sociologist who takes all kinds of surveys and has for about 15 or 20 years on the state of evangelicalism in America. His end-of-the-year report came out last week, and he lists the 10 most significant findings of the last year. And I was going to read all 10 of them. I'll do that another time. But one of them was that most that, that pastors, the, the survey indicated that pastors think that 70% of their congregation is going forward spiritually. And the reality is that about 10% of them are. Now, that's a broad spectrum of evangelicalism, and I would say that's probably pretty optimistic even for 
for most evangelicals because most of them are just part of the old nod to God crowd. They just want to show up on Sunday morning, have a 20-minute sermonette for Christianettes, and that's it. That's all they've got, and they don't ever get very much uh, feeding of the Word, but you have a lot of idealistic uh, pastors out there who are extremely naive about the nature of sheep. But I think we have a different scenario here at West Houston Bible Church and a lot of doctrinal churches because people who come to Bible churches tend to be really, or doctrinal churches rather, tend to be very motivated to learn the Word. But even that doesn't mean that just because you're here three nights or three times a week or you're listening to tapes four or five times a week or whatever it is, that you're going anywhere spiritually. You may be just accumulating a lot of knowledge, but there may not be much application are much change, and that happens with a lot of people, and we've all seen that happen where people get a lot of knowledge and think that somehow just the knowledge of doctrine equals spiritual maturity. It's not. It's the application of doctrine that brings about spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. So the writer of the uh, epistle uses a first-person plural here. It's an authorial we but it's, it's simply expressing his own desire that each one of, in this congregation show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. Now, I want to come back to this word in just a minute, but this idea of the same diligence, same as what? what what's the point of comparison? The same diligence, you really have to go to the next verse to pick it up, And in verse 12 we read that they are to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now in the context of Hebrews, he's going to go through this whole list of faith heroes in chapter 11. And at the end of which he's going to say this great cloud of witnesses. So what he has in his head is he's looking back to the great heroes of the faith from the Old Testament, because he's focusing on the Old Testament doesn't mean that that nobody in the New Testament is, but just in terms of canonicity, they're not there yet uh, to mention them. So we're talking about Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and David and Elijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and all the Old Testament saints, but also we would include the New Testament people such as... um, uh, Mary and Martha, we would also talk about uh, Peter and Paul and James and the all of the apostles, that these are men and women who uh, pushed it to spiritual maturity and were uh, tremendously dedicated to serving the Lord. And that is the example. We are to look to them because they are imitating Christ. It's not we're imitating them because we're just imitating them, as we'll see in a few minutes as we look at some of these passages, Paul said, imitate me because I'm imitating the Lord. Don't imitate him in the things where he's not imitating the Lord, but imitate him and imitate these heroes of the faith because of what they had in common, which made them tremendous servants of God and servants of Christ. And our focus is to look to them as models and examples of how they through faith and patience, inherited the promises. So we're to have that same kind of diligence. 
And so he says, we desire that each one of you show this, demonstrate it. It is supposed to be evident in your life. Uh, a Greek word that indicates a, a, a proof that, that somebody will look at your life and see this kind of thing. And it, the word for diligence is spude. It's related to, it's a noun form of the verb spudazo. Spudazo is the word that is translated in the King James Version. Study to show thyself approved unto God. The study is really more of an interpretation of the word in that passage. It's the idea of being diligent in your responsibilities. And since Timothy was a pastor, his responsibility was to study and teach. So that's why they translated that uh, study to show yourself approved unto God in the King James. Newer translations usually translate it just be diligent. But that's that idea. It involves hard work. It has a sense of urgency about it. Uh, a sense of priority and importance that this is so crucial that you need to be diligent, you need to put forth effort, you need to, you need to put forth spiritual sweat to grow. You need to make going to Bible class a priority, reading your Bible a priority, learning promises a priority, studying everything you can and putting it into application. And as we'll see, there's this sense of urgency in the text all through the New Testament, because Jesus could actually come back tomorrow, and are we ready for the Bema seat? It can happen tomorrow. It may not happen till the next day. And even if Jesus doesn't come back tomorrow, you may be in a head-on collision on the way home tonight, and you're meeting Jesus just as sure as if He had come. So are you ready? That's the urgency that He has here to put forth a diligence, a an effort to the full assurance of hope until the end, and the word for assurance is conviction. Do you really believe that Jesus could come tomorrow? Now, if you believe that, how's that affecting how you're living today? Would you live, if you knew for sure that Jesus Christ was going to come back next week, how would that change what you were doing between now and next week? If you knew you were going to be standing before the beam of seat of Christ in ten days, how would that change? And if it's going to change anything, then that's what we need to work on, is we need to realize that this really is going to happen, folks. It's not just a nice doctrine. It's just not an interesting curiosity. It's just not a nice academic fact. Jesus is coming back. We are going to be taken to an evaluation before him. And are we living today in light of that evaluation? That's the idea here, that we have a true conviction that this is true. That's part of what faith is. If you believe that your house was caught, was caught had just caught on fire, what would you do right now? You'd be running out the back door. Your actions would be related to what you truly believe and are convinced is true. That's the idea here. So, the, that there's be this diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. And that word hope is the word for our confident expectation. And it is to the end, that is the destiny, the end goal of the Christian life. Not the end of our life, but until the end, till we reach that mature stage. It's the Greek word telos, which is related to the verb teleao, which is translated maturity or completeness. It's that idea of taking it all the way to the final product of spiritual maturity. And then we come to verse 12. That you do not become sluggish. In other words, be diligent. Don't be lazy. Don't become complacent. But 
set out your goals spiritually. Make a plan. Change your priorities. Uh, make the Word of God a priority. Listen to tapes. Get in the car. Listen to an MP3 player. Uh, when you're at home, uh, put it on the whatever recording device you have. Uh, listen to DVDs. If you don't have time to listen to a whole lesson at one time, then just listen for 15, 15 minutes. Just whatever time you have, utilize that time. If you want to memorize Scripture, uh, get 3 by 5 cards. Print them out. Buy. You can go to the any Christian bookstore probably and buy the NAV Press uh, pack for the navigators that they have for their uh, basic memoriza- Bible memorization. They give you a vinyl plastic thing that has a clear side on it, and you get your memory verses, and you work on that. I did that for years. And you learn those verses. Whatever works for you, but just get it done. Uh, memorize Scripture. Listen to the Bible on tape. You can buy. You can go to any kind of uh, website, used book website, get Charlton Heston reading the Bible on tape or on CD or whatever it is. But the point is that to maximize that time where the Word of God is shaping your thinking. So we're not to become sluggish. This is the Greek word nothros, which is a word meaning lazy or sluggardly or complacent. And so the contrast is not to become complacent and sluggish in your spiritual growth, but to imitate mature believers. Now, he's already accused them of being sluggish. The same word is used in verse 11 where he says, you've already become dull of hearing. So they're already showing signs of slipping into uh, negative volition. Then he says to imitate them, the, the mature believers. This is the Greek word mimetes, which is where we get our word mimic. You can hear it in the sound of the Greek word mimetes. And it means to imitate someone, to follow their Example, as we see how they live and how are we to imitate them. We imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We don't imitate them in their carnality because every human being who's a believer has carnality and failure. Paul had failures. We don't imitate them in that area. Imitate them in the way that they're imitating Jesus Christ. This is what Paul says in a number of passages, 1 Corinthians 4.16. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. Now, he's not on, a, on some kind of an approbation trip where he wants everybody to live just like him. He's imitating Christ, as he makes clear in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. He is a mature believer. He is so sold out to the plan of God and the agenda of Jesus Christ in serving Him in the church age that He can say, do what I do because what He's doing is precisely what Jesus Christ said to do. Now that's the Apostle Paul. In Ephesians 5.1, he says, therefore be imitators of God. That's the ultimate standard that we are to mimic. 1 Thessalonians 1.6, he says to them, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So we are to be imitators ultimately of the Lord Jesus Christ. But this concept of imitation is further defined by 
this prepositional clause that it is to be done through, we're to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, I already pointed out that this is a reference primarily to Old Testament believers, Old Testament heroes of the faith, but secondarily it would also include the New Testament leaders of the church. Now the word here translated, um, where translate patience, we have the word uh, makrothemia, which has the idea of long suffering or forbearance. Makra means long. You know, we get macro. That's where we get our English word macro. It means big or long or large. And thumia is is a word for anger. Thumas is a word for anger. So makros thumas, long on anger, it takes you a long time to get irritated, angry, and impatient. See, that's a good word. It it just makes a lot of sense. Now, most of us are still struggling with that, but uh, we're to be long-suffering. So it's through patience, through waiting. God, we're not going to see that inheritance tomorrow or the next day. That's part of the test, is learning to wait on the Lord. This is a different concept from, from... uh, the word for endurance, which is hupomone, which has the idea of staying under the pressure. This is the idea of waiting calmly, relaxed mental attitude, uh, not getting impatient because we're living in the devil's world. We're just getting so frustrated all the time with having to deal with a lot of sinful people around us. Turn to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11 gives us this same idea in an expanded sense. So James is just one more book to the right. Hebrews, then James. And this is the last chapter of James. In fact, Hebrews, I mean, excuse me, James 5-7 is where James begins his conclusion of the epistle. In James 5-8, James, or 5-7, he says, Therefore, be patient. He's going to repeat the word patience, or use as, as a, almost a synonym for it, hupomones for endurance, several times from 5-7 to the end of chapter 5. That's the theme. He introduced that theme of endurance back in James 1, verse 2, where he said, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So as our doctrine gets tested, our belief system gets tested, then we are to be consistent in application of the word. Well, he wraps up in his conclusion, he says, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. So, again, we see that James has that same future focus that that the writer of Hebrews has and that Paul has, is that we're living today in light of what's coming. We don't want to be like the person John refers to in verse John 2.28 of having shame at the judgment seat of Christ. We, so we need to be patient, a long-suffering, not get impatient uh, until the coming of the Lord. And he uses an illustration from agriculture. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Whatever you do, you can't make those, make the corn or make the tomatoes or make whatever it is you're growing grow faster. It has, it proceeds at its own rate. You can't make yourself grow any faster spiritually. 
You can't hurry it up. You can't go out there and try to make things happen. It takes time. I think, I'm convinced that a certain amount of spiritual maturity just is going to take place because you become more emotionally mature. It just takes time. And you can't rush it. So the, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. Now, this is not a reference to the coming of the Holy Spirit at the beginning of the church age and then a later manifestation for some end-time revival at the end of the church. I just have to throw that in because there's a whole lot of people out there who believe that. As soon as they see latter rain, they start talking in terms of the Holy Spirit because this is a big charismatic doctrine. So it's not talking about that, just using an agricultural analogy. In Israel, you have a rainy season in the spring. That's the early rains. And you have another rainy season later on towards late summer, early fall. That's the latter rains. It doesn't have anything to do with the coming of the Holy Spirit. But there's a whole bunch of people who think that it does. And that's what happens when you don't have literal hermeneutics. So verse 8, you also be patient. He repeats the concept again. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Ingus, it's at hand. It's imminent. It can happen at any moment. So he repeats this uh, command to be patient, and then he says to establish establish your hearts. And this, again, is an imperative uh, form of the verb sterizo, which means to set it in place. It's it's setting something in concrete to make it firm, uh, to establish it, that you need to take your decision to make the Word of God, a priority in your life, and set that in concrete. There's a lot of people who, 20 years into their Christian life, they're still trying to figure out if they're going to follow Jesus. You know, it's okay to follow Jesus as long as His agenda is my agenda and as long as He stays in my comfort zone. But as soon as He gets me out of my comfort zone, then, then well, I've got to find something else to do because he just, we don't want to get too fanatical about this Bible doctrine stuff. But the idea here is you have to establish your hearts. You have to make a decision that what matters to me is the Word of God. And it doesn't matter what else because I'm going to do what the Word of God says to do. I'm going to make that the thinking of my soul. So the command here is to set it in place, to fix it so it doesn't move, to make a permanent decision in terms of the course of your life. Establish your heart because of something future. The coming of the Lord is near. Then we have a second. uh, Then we have the the reason given uh, based on a hottie clause. It's because the Lord's coming is near. And this is a reference again to 2 Corinthians 5.10 that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. See where I am here. Okay, back up. Because we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. This brings us to the doctrine of works that we studied a couple of weeks ago. And I just want to remind you of Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. You're not saved just so you can go to heaven. You're not saved just so you can sit in Bible class and accumulate 
25 doctrinal notebooks from A to Z of all the important doctrines in the Bible and be able to correlate everything together. Not that there's anything wrong with those things, but that's not the purpose for your salvation. The purpose of your salvation drives through all of that's means. It drives through all that to application because we are to be living evidence within the framework of the angelic conflict. And that means a production of divine good that stands on record for all of eternity. We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is, manifesting these good works. Now, part of this affects uh, our basic attitude. Now, this is one of those verses in the Bible most of us would like to to say, well, I believe in the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture. Every word comes from the mouth of God except for this verse. And there's a verse over in Philippians that says, don't do all things without grumbling or complaining. And we just kind of, well, let's go to the next verse. But this says, do not grumble. And the word here is the Greek stenadza, which means to complain, to groan, to gripe about whatever it is that other believers are doing that irritate you. I don't know about you, but there's a lot of things other believers irritate me, and this verse is not an easy verse. Do not grumble against one another. Don't complain about other believers. Whatever it is that they're doing, don't complain about them. Don't gripe about them, because that's between them and the Lord, and the Lord's going to handle it. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned, because, see, you're going to be accountable for that. They may be doing things in a in an irresponsible way. They may, may be doing things in a foolish way. They may have lower standards. They may be messing up by the numbers. But that's between them and the Lord. Your job and my job is to apply doctrine consistently, so that we're because we're going to be accountable uh, before the Lord. Behold, the Judge is standing at the door. He wants us to realize this. We need to live in the immediacy of the second coming, or the rapture. The immediacy of the coming of Jesus for us and taking us to the judgment seat of Christ. So that that is so real to us that it's more real than anything else that we're doing in life. Verse 10. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. See, he's saying the same thing the writer of Hebrews is saying. Is look at Abraham, how long he waited before he realized the promise of Isaac. Look at uh, Jacob as he's out of the land for 20 years before he uh, returns uh, to the land. Look at Joseph as we're studying now and the, the years he spends as a slave and then in prison before God promotes him. Look at David in the years he spent out in the wilderness waiting on the promise of God before it was finally realized. Look at Paul who is called an apostle as one out of season in Acts chapter in Acts chapter 9 and yet he goes and he has to spend 14 years back in Tarsus before Barnabas says, oh, well, wait a minute, we got this guy named uh, Saul of Tarsus or Paul, I've got to go get him because he'd be perfect for this job of taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And so he's just 
set aside in training for a long period of time before Paul finally gets involved in the ministry. So there is a period of suffering and training and patience here, verse 10. Verse 11, Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. There's hupomone. It's related to patience. You've heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So the writer of James takes Job as his example. But there's one other thing that's going on here. You see, when we look at these examples and you say, okay, Okay, I, I hear what you're saying. I need to look at, at Adam and Noah and Abraham. But, you know, God appeared to them. And, and what about, you know, Jesus appeared to, to, to Paul. And you've got Peter, Peter and, and, and Andrew and James and all the other disciples. And they walked with Jesus for three years. Now, if I had that then maybe that would make a difference. I mean, these guys, were some, there was something different about them. And see, that's, that's this rationalization that people adopt to justify mediocrity in their spiritual life. I can't have the impact of James or John or Peter or, or any of the Old Testament believers because, I mean, they just had something special. And the lie is that they... We're different from us, and we tend to think, oh, well, you know, they, they were just different. But they're not. The truth is, there's no difference whatsoever. James 5.17 says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And the point is that Elijah's not any different than you or me. Isaiah wasn't any different than you or me. Daniel wasn't any different from you or me. Don't say, well, it was his environment. Don't say, well, you know, God appeared to him. That's it, garbage. There's no difference. The only difference is their volition. And see, when you look at Old Testament saints, which is where both Hebrews and James are going here for their point of comparison, you've got so much more. You've got the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You've got the filling of the Holy Spirit. You've you've been sealed by the Spirit. You have the completed canon of Scripture. You have this vast array of both Old Testament and New Testament and church age witnesses who've set an example before you. You don't have an excuse. I don't have an excuse. The challenge here is that with all of this, we need to follow their example. And the only difference is that they were willing to trust God and walk by faith and not by sight, and we're not. And it's a matter of volition. Are you willing to do what they did, make the decisions they made, because for them, God was more real and the plan of God was more real than anything that they experienced, anything in their background. Now that leads us to a question, and that is, what is it that really made them different? What made it possible for those men and women to be the spiritual giants that we think are, to have the impact that they had, and to serve the Lord to such a great degree? And how can we uh, imitate that? Well... The first point is that it boils down to their faith. They had the will, the gumption, the guts, whatever word you want to use, to really believe God, to truly trust Him and take Him at His word and take up the challenge to walk by faith and not by sight. 
Second Corinthians 5, 7 tells us we walk by faith and not by sight. That means that the Word of God and the principles described in the Word of God have to become more real to you than anything you experience, whether it's emotions, whether it's pressure from those who are outside. Just think of all the, all the rejection Jesus went through. He, John 1 says that he came to his own, but his own received him not. For 2,000 years, God was preparing the Jewish people to receive and accept Jesus, his son, as their Messiah. And he came and they said, no, we don't want you. Did he react? Were his feelings hurt? Did he uh, get all upset and say, well, I'm just going to go home then? No. He just kept at it and kept at it and kept at it. And no matter how they mistreated him, maltreated him, abused him, falsely accused him, Jesus never vacillated, never changed, never waffled, but kept his eye on the mission. And the mission was to serve God completely. So for Jesus, in his humanity, the Word of God was more real to him than all of the opposition, all of the rejection, all of the hostility, all of the insults, all of the gossip, all the slander. They called him a drunk. They called him a glutton because he went to parties and he would eat and drink. And obviously he had to be drinking alcoholic wine or they wouldn't have had a basis for calling him a drunk. Didn't mean he got drunk. They, if he ate food, so they called him a glutton. So that means he had to have had a glass of wine and then they called him a drunk. But the reason was, was John the Baptist came and he didn't. He was uh, he fasted. He did not partake of any uh Pleasantry. So they were just, you, you see, people are always going to generate an excuse to be against you if you're a believer, if you're standing for the truth. And they're always going to take something that has a, a little core truth and then twist it all, all out of proportion. So Jesus came, and for him, the Word of God was more real than anything that people did. That means that you have to do what Jesus did, what Paul did, what Moses did. What everybody did, they lived on a totally different, on a totally different code of conduct. What was in their head and why they lived and why, why they made the choices they made was not like, not like anybody else. They had a different standard of thinking. They were operating, you're going to love this. They were operating on a Mac operating system while everybody else was on a PC. <laughs> they just had something better going for them. They had the truth. Now, some of you PC people don't understand that. But, you know, I've been using Macs for 20 years. And any given Mac I've ever had never broke. Every PC I had gets a new everything every year. So... They had a superior operating system. They had the truth, divine viewpoint, and they were completely sold out to it. But people who continue to try to operate on both systems, human viewpoint and divine viewpoint when it's comfortable, it always crashes. It never works. And they were that's what made the heroes of the Old Testament better was they operated at key points on divine viewpoint. Their 
core values, whether we're talking about Jesus, whether we're talking about Old Testament prophets, whether we're talking about New Testament heroes, their core values were always shaped completely by the Word of God. So that the existence of God and accountability to Christ at the judgment seat of Christ was more real to them than any temptation, than any physical pleasure, than any personal agenda item that you can come up with. The, the fact of the judgment seat of Christ was so real to Paul. I mean, just read what he says in 1 Corinthians 9 and in 2 Corinthians 5, where he talks about, in places where he talks about running the race and, and how he uh, beat his body into submission, as it were, using a tremendous metaphor there where you just feel the energy that's there of how he just is almost physically grabbing himself, forcing himself to do that which he knows he must do because of the real danger of being disqualified. So the existence of God and accountability of Christ was more real. They were walking by faith and not by sight. Well, that's the first. I have five, five things that made it possible for these people to be the spiritual heroes they were. And it all starts after salvation with that willingness to make the Word of God the number one priority and to walk by faith and not by sight where what God says is more important to you than what anybody else says or thinks. No matter what anybody does, the only thing that matters is what Jesus said I need to do in this kind of situation. That's the starting point. We'll get to the other four when I come back from Kiev in about three or four weeks. But one of the points is that they all have a passion for evangelism. And when I'm gone, not next week, but the following week, Ike is going to be teaching on Tuesday and Thursday night related to principles of evangelism and communicating the gospel in a pagan world. So you're going to want to pay attention to what Ike says at that time. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time to... I'll be challenged by your word to reflect on what it is that makes uh, great believers great believers. And ultimately, it's their desire to uh, walk by faith, to trust you, to put the word of God at the highest place of priority where their thoughts are totally shaped by the reality of what you have said and described in your word and not experience or events or people or popularity. We pray that you would challenge us with these things. In Christ's name, amen.